Good morning again. Um, I forgot to announce one important thing. So on the 4th of December, we have a, another partnership conference. It's an important one because we've had our financial stuff audited, and so that needs to come back to the partnership. That's basically the biggest thing on the, the agenda is to know that our finances have been audited, and we say, yes, we agree with that, or no, we don't. In that case, I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> That's above my pay grade. Okay, and last thing I want to say, some, somewhere there is some sermon bingo sheets. I had them, they might be on that back table there behind um, Vic. So if you want to do sermon bingo, there's some pencils back there as well. And the Bible reading isn't included, Mr. Dunn, young Mr. Dunn. There was one of those words in that Bible reading just now, but the Bible reading wasn't included in my sermon bingo. <laughs> Aha. Okay. Who knows what the story of Jonah is about? Some people. It's the messiest of messy graces, yes? It, it's about a big fish, right? And it's a prophet who tries to run away from God but comes around in the end. And see, ah, see, Anne just predicted my next question is, what if I told you that, that only one of those things? So it, it's about a big fish and a prophet who runs away from God and who comes around in the end. There's three points there. What if I told you that only one of those things is true? The story is one of the messiest of messy grace stories in the Bible. And many of us remember it from Sunday school days and we think to ourselves, ha, we would not be like Jonah. We would never blatantly disobey God like that, would we? <laughs> silence. <laughs> I like that silence. Like everyone's going, um, maybe. <laughs> the book of Jonah comes in number five in what we call the book of the 12. The book of the 12 is a collection of 12 prophets, which we call the minor prophets. And what I love about these books is each one of them is designed to draw you into the story and leave you reflecting on your own life and whether you take God's commands seriously. They're like little mirrors, little mirrors that reflect our heart. Now, I'm going to use Harry Potter quote uh, illustration here because it's the best illustration I could find because Harry discovers a mirror called the mirror of Erised. And Harry sneaks out of his room on many occasions to go and sit in front of the mirror of Erised because when he sits in front of that mirror, he sees himself with his now dead parents over his shoulders smiling at him with pride. And he goes to get his friend and he says, Friend, Ron, look, look in the mirror. There's my parents. And Ron looks in the mirror and see, Ron sees himself holding a sporting trophy up. <laughs> And Dumbledore, a little bit later, we hear what he sees in the mirror. He says to, to Harry, I see myself holding a pair of thick woolen socks. Another Christmas has come and gone, and I didn't get a pair. People will insist on giving me books. The mirror, it turns out, shows your heart's desire. 
And if you look at the word erised, erised is desire spelt backwards because it's a mirror. Harry longs for acceptance from his parents or knowledge of his parents. They died when he was an infant. So he sees them in the mirror. Ron is the sixth child of a large family and he longs recognition. See me, I'm the sixth child. And Dumbledore, we learn later, experienced tragedies in his own life. And so Dumbledore longs for family, someone who would think to give him an intimate present like socks rather than a present like books. So just like the mirror of said, the stories in the Book of the Twelve are supposed to raise a mirror to our hearts much like this, so that we can see the reality of our own hearts, where things like pride, hard-heartedness, judgmentalism, tribalism, small-mindedness, and the ability, inability to change and let God's word transform reside. Did any of those things echo true for you? Understanding what the mirror shows us hurts. And contrary to popular opinion, Jonah is not a kid's story. It's more like a punch in the stomach that makes us take a step back and look long at ourselves. So with that, I want to launch into what Jonah is about. It sounds joyful. I hope at the end of this you do see why Jonah is in the Bible. To receive this punch of the story, I think we need to understand what sort of text we're reading. And it's, it's a lot, there's a lot going on in this book. A lot going on in this book. But there's humour, there's wit, there's irony, there's misdirection, there's exaggeration, there's satire. This book is brilliantly written on so many levels. It's almost comic book-like in its literary devices. But it's a bit tricky to see that at first. There's enough information to conclude that Jonah was a real person. He's mentioned in Kings and also by Jesus. But the literary techniques being employed also imply there's much more going on in this book. And it's not about the fish. The book is probably best viewed as satire. Satire is a genre based on real people and real events mixed with exaggeration. And it holds up a mirror to the audience so that they can see some sort of failing or blindness that gets past our defences because humour has caused us to let our guard down. It's not to be confused with parody, which is designed to mimic and make fun of something. Satire uses humour to highlight something absurd and calls for a response from the audience, which is exactly what the book of Jonah does. And we Australians are positioned in a really good place to hear this message because satire is deeply ingrained in our culture. So in the first couple of verses we read, you can open your Bibles to Jonah. I'm going to be all over the place in Jonah. You can turn your Bibles on on your phones, but I'll read them through. It starts with this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it, for their evil has come before me. So what sort of book are we reading? The prophecy tells us that much. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Our logic says the word of the Lord comes to prophets. Now keep this in mind for the next bit. Jonah means dove. So it carries with it connotations of 
innocence. And Amatai means faithfulness. So this particular prophet's name is Dove, son of faithfulness. What expectations do we have of a man named Dove, son of faithfulness? And so God comes to him and says, Arise and go to Nineveh. And we begin to wonder what's going to happen in Nineveh. What is God going to do there? Is he going to send fire from heaven? But this is where the story takes its first sharp turn. Dove, the son of faithfulness, rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Interesting. Not what I was expecting. God said, arise, and Jonah went down, the opposite direction. This does not sound like something the son of faithfulness, innocent as a dove, would do, does it? And God just told him to go to Nineveh, and he goes in the opposite direction. This book is full of exaggeration and misdirection. Everything is huge. The ship is huge, the storm is huge, the fish is huge, the city is huge, Everything is huge. The Hebrew word for huge is used 14 times in four short chapters. This should let us know that something is going on and we need to pay attention to it. The extent of Nineveh's repentance is huge. Not only does their king repent, everyone repents, including many animals. I don't know how that works. When the storm comes, the Hebrew language describes the ship considering whether it's going to fall apart or not. Let me say that again. It it describes the ship considering whether it's going to fall apart or not. The ship is a character in the story that appears to have its own sense of feelings about what's going on. And all the way through, the words point one way and the story goes the other way. God says to Dove, son of faithfulness, arise, go to Nineveh, that great Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. Is there anything particularly difficult in that message? Do you think that Jonah could have misunderstood that message? I don't think so either. So one would expect Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. And we read, Jonah rose up to flee from God and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And I want, I want you to stay with me here. Um, I know we don't know what the geography is. There should be a map coming up here. We don't know where Jonah was when he heard the word of the Lord, but I put a little smiley face there because he went down to Joppa, possibly. Jonah wasn't trying to go a little bit away from God. <laughs> If you look at the map, he couldn't go any further away. He was trying to get as far as possible away from God. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. But there's more happening here to indicate Jonah's attitude. As we keep reading, see if you can pick out the pattern emerging. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm, so the ship was about to break up. 
But Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship and lain down and fallen asleep. Do you see the extent of Jonah's avoidance of what God had said? Jonah went down to Joppa, went down into the boat, went down to the hold of the boat and went down to sleep. When God says arise, Jonah says, I don't want to. And for good reason. Nineveh are renowned, still renowned, for how absolutely horrible they could be to other humans. Known for their ruthless ability to cause as much pain on their victims as possible while keeping them alive for as long as possible. Nineveh was known for impaling people on large sticks and placing them outside the city. Big deal, you say. Lots of cities, surely lots of people did that. Lots of uh, people groups. And you're right, but Nineveh was known for doing so so carefully that they kept the person alive after the process was complete. This Ninevite method of behaviour modification is mostly frowned upon these days, but it's no wonder that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. So God sends a big storm. And Jonah is asleep, and all the sailors are praying, and nothing happens. So they wake Jonah up, and they force him to admit that it's his fault. The sailors draw lots, it's like rolling dice, and whoever loses must be your fault. And Jonah loses the role, and they ask him, why is this happening? What do you do for a living? Where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? A few questions there. How many does Jonah answer? I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I don't think he answered all of those questions. Did he answer the question, what, what do you do? He was silent on that issue. He's a prophet and he says, I fear the Lord of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Do you though? Like, do you though, Jonah? The people who have shown, the only people who have shown any fear of the Lord in this passage are the other sailors who came from other religious backgrounds. And they're also the ones who recognize that if your God made the sea, maybe you shouldn't get on a boat to try and flee from that God. And Jonah doesn't say, I'm sorry, I'll go to Nineveh, turn the boat around and take me back to Joppa. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that because he still doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Maybe we could read a sense of repentance in Jonah's actions here, but I don't think there's any evidence of repentance. There's no evidence that his heart has changed. Not only does he not say, I will go to Nineveh, what's interesting is that he says to the sailors, throw me overboard. Why not jump, buddy? Like, take some responsibility and and take an action on yourself. He's not even willing to take responsibility. He's like, you throw me overboard. Even though the sailors try to go back to Dropper at this point, Jonah has not changed his mind and neither has God. So the sailors throw him overboard. Which direction did Jonah go? 
down. Jonah was willing to die so that he did not have to go to Nineveh. And you know the story. Jonah says, uh, God says, I don't want you to die. I want you to go to Nineveh. So after Jonah is in the belly of a fish and he prays a very Jonah-centric prayer with no evidence even yet of any repentance, God tells the fish, and this is my favorite verse in the Bible, to vomit him up onto dry land. I love the fact that the word vomit is in our Bible. That's just the way I am. <laughs> and this time when Jonah is told to arise and go, he does go, but only the bare minimum of what God is asking. So Jonah goes to the outskirts of Nineveh. He doesn't go to the center of town. And he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Basically, he couldn't get any less words in there than those words. Jonah, it's, it's almost as if Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to hear this message. Does any of this sound familiar with our own behavior? Are we seeing any mirrors yet? Despite Jonah's attempts to minimize the message, even the king hears from the outskirts of town, somehow the king hears that message and everybody repents. And Jonah is angry. We would never run the other way from God, would we? I mean, if God told me to do something, I would do it. If God had told me to go to Nineveh, I would have gone to Nineveh. I reckon that statement's right up there with, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Or, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have um, denied Jesus three times. Really? Because you know what? God has told us to go to Nineveh. And we do exactly the same thing every day. One of Jesus' most famous teachings is his answer to the question, which is the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Footnote, this includes your enemies. Now I know it's popular to promote an us versus them rhetoric at this time. There's pastors, preachers, prophets and other Christian leaders. The world is against us and we should go out guns blazing, arguing, yelling, judging, dismissing. But as we've seen in this story, the person God is needing to pull into line most is Jonah, not evil Nineveh. Nineveh responds immediately. Jonah does not. We are like Jonah. I mean, we can't love those people who are horrible to us, surely. But what about enemies to Australia? Like, yeah, okay, I can love those people, but if they're enemies to our nation, I mean, God doesn't really expect us to love people who don't deserve it, right? I reckon most of us know what Jesus said about this. Have we misunderstood his message? I don't, I don't think that's true either. Love your neighbor as yourself. Footnote. Love your enemies. But 
painful, isn't it? The but comes so fast. But surely, but what if it's almost as painful as a punch in the stomach when we realise I'm just like Jonah. And I'm sure there's many hearts crying out, it's not fair. And Jesus is saying, you're right, it is not fair. It's not fair that while you were yet sinners, I died for you. And I died for the people you consider to be your enemies because they're my children too. The story of Jonah is not about a fish. It's not about a prophet coming right in the end. Jonah never repents. Jonah, the story of Jonah, oh sorry, Jonah is about one of God's people trying to run from him and how God's grace is messy enough to cover the Ninevites and a disobedient prophet. This amazing little book has powerful message at its heart. When God says, love your enemy, he means, love your enemy. Because of this message, it's hard for us to hear. God has this short little story full of humor, exaggeration and Satire, written and included in our Bibles to cut through our defences. When we read this story, through all the misdirection and exaggeration, we find ourselves face to face with that mirror of our inner heart. This mirror reveals God's messy grace. God's grace extends to people we don't think deserve it. But are our current adversaries really as bad as Nineveh? And if they are, if we conclude that they are, you know what we're called to do? To love them. Let me finish with the last couple of sentences to the story that was read to us by Barry earlier. God says to Jonah, You have been concerned about this plant that you did nothing to tend or grow. It sprang up overnight and it died. Should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their left, as well as many animals. God is concerned about those in our world who do not know their right from their left. Are our actions helping them come to him? Or are we, like Jonah, actually being part of the problem in the story? When we look at the mirror of Jonah's story, what do we see? When we look at the mirror of Jonah's story, What are we going to do about that?